The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent publication in the December 15, 2012 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, entitled Severe Sepsis in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, Analysis of Incidents, Care, and Outcomes. The first author of this article is Dr. Christopher Seymour, who is a junior faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, Departments of Critical Care and Emergency Medicine. He is also mentored by Drs. Derek Angus and Jeremy Kahn at the Clinical Research Investigation and Systems Modeling of Acute Illness Center at the University of Pittsburgh. He previously trained at the University of Washington with Dr. Leonard Hudson and Tom Ree, where he began a research program in pre-hospital critical illness. He is currently supported by grants from the American Heart Association, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and is beginning a career development award from the National Institute of General Medicine and is beginning a career development award from the National Institute of General Medical Sciences in January. These awards support his research on the recognition of severe sepsis prior to hospital arriving using both clinical data and pre-hospital biomarkers. Also participating in our conversation today is Dr. Sean R. Townsend, Vice President of Quality and Safety at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, California. He is Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Townsend is a practicing intensivist in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at California Pacific Medical Center, and he has been a faculty advisor to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's 100,000 Lives and 5 Million Lives campaigns. He led IHI's work on sepsis, and he is a member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Executive Committee. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Sean, for joining us. Dr. Seymour, your work describes severe sepsis in the pre-hospital setting and compares the incidence of severe sepsis to the incidence of other major medical conditions that are commonly encountered by emergency medical services. Can you tell us what interested you about this topic? Why did you undertake this uh, large and involved study? That's a great question, David, and thanks to the Society for inviting my participation. You know, we would all agree that sepsis has a large burden on our healthcare system, with an incidence somewhere between three to seven per thousand and a large cost, almost over 17 billion with an improving but high mortality among patients with severe sepsis. And yet, until now, the recognition and treatment of sepsis has typically began when a patient arrived at the hospital. And yet, many of these patients are first encountered sort of at the frontier of critical care, which would be the pre-hospital phase. And there are patients in ambulances that are brought to the hospital who are already in the throes of their inflammation and sepsis. And so to complement the epidemiology that's now well-known about sepsis in the hospital and even in the emergency department, we sought to better characterize the burden on our EMS system. 
system of severe sepsis and then compare this to conditions more commonly thought to be the focus of our paramedics, including stroke or acute myocardial infarction. To follow up, you and your colleagues used a rigorous set of definitions to define severe sepsis and organ failures that fulfill the criteria for severe sepsis. A lot of readers may not be familiar with these rigorous definitions, and so I'm hoping that you can tell us a bit more about these definitions and why you think they were important in case finding for your study and the external validity of your findings. And also, if you could very briefly describe what you think the key findings of your study are. And that's a great question. So to better understand the epidemiology of pre-hospital severe sepsis, we began with a cohort of over 400,000 records from EMS transports that were part of the King County EMS or Emergency Medical Services System in the state of Washington. And this is a system in which all 911 calls from the entire county are serviced by this single agency. We were looking at encounters for patients older than the age of 18 who were transported to a hospital and yet neither had a trauma nor a cardiac arrest. And we looked at these encounters over a decade from 2000 to 2009. And at that point, we embarked upon what you described as case finding or trying to identify among these patients who had severe sepsis when they were in the hospital. We used an algorithm, of which there are many, from administrative data drawn from hospital discharge records, in which we used ICD-9 codes, and in particular, what's been called the ANGUS implementation, as a way of identifying who had severe sepsis. And this Angus implementation, named for Dr. Derek Angus at the University of Pittsburgh, includes many codes, uh, hundreds of them, that identify patients with infection, but then also a separate set of ICD-9 codes that identify when major organ failures are present. A second step we did was then to categorize whether severe sepsis was present on admission. These are so-called POA codes that are included in hospital discharge data since 2007. And for every diagnosis in the record, there's a flag as to whether this diagnosis was noted and present when the patient arrived to the hospital. And we believe it's a significant strength to the work that we could link the EMS encounter to the diagnosis of severe sepsis as soon as the patient arrived to the hospital. And using these methods, we found some pretty fascinating conclusions. And first, we noted that EMS was transporting severe sepsis all the time. And in fact, when we compared how often the EMS providers were transporting patients with severe sepsis to those patients with stroke or AMI, they were encountering them much more often. Perhaps for every four patients with acute myocardial infarction, EMS was taking almost 10 patients with severe sepsis to the hospital. But more importantly, among 80% of the hospitalizations for severe sepsis, they were present on admission, perhaps implying that some of the symptoms or signs of inflammation or organ failure may already be present when our pre-hospital providers are taking care of them. One important fact that we were curious about was how long a paramedic may actually spend with the patient. 
if the severe sepsis patient is on the ambulance gurney for no more than 10 minutes on average, there may not be much time for an intervention or us to potentially change practice for the better. And at least in King County, Washington, which is a semi-urban and urban rural area, we found that on average, EMS was spending about 45 minutes in total, including both seed and transport time, with the patient before they got to the hospital, perhaps suggesting that there is at least an opportunity for them to recognize those patients with severe sepsis and perhaps even do something about it. Dr. Thompson, you have worked extensively in the past with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement to promote better recognition and improved treatment for sepsis. I was wondering if you could add some insight about how Dr. Seymour's results add to our understanding of the continuum of care in severe sepsis. Thanks, David. I think that the most important thing to note about uh, these results is that it shines a, a light of reality on what we've known in the campaign, the sepsis campaign, for quite some time, but which we have had a difficult time measuring. And that is that sepsis is a continuum. It is not something which starts at a specific time point. So the reality of sepsis quality improvement work is that you need to have a time zero from which you start the clock to determine how efficiently providers, nurses, and staff are able to recognize sepsis and begin the necessary therapies that have to occur within a six-hour time frame. For the purposes of the campaign, what we have done is called time zero the triage time in the emergency department and started the clock then, even though the signs and symptoms of severe sepsis or septic shock may not actually be detected until one or two, perhaps three hours into the hospitalization. And these results shine a light on the, the distinction between detecting signs and symptoms and beginning therapies which are appropriate for patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. We've struggled mightily within the campaign to get people to put together the signs and symptoms of what ultimately is a clinical diagnosis requiring two or more SERS criteria, a suspected site of infection, and then organ dysfunction to call severe sepsis technically, and their actual performance and response to the patient with severe sepsis in the emergency department. These results actually point out quite clearly that most of the time, quite often, patients have begun the spectrum of decompensation due to severe sepsis prior to arrival at the hospital, and that there is a great opportunity to initiate therapies long before they arrive if it can be detected in the field, which should have been obvious all along to us. It's just that our focus on measurement in the past has revolved around setting a specific start point for the clock. So another way of looking at this is that we've traditionally treated the first moment of hospital encounter as time zero for when the clock starts ticking on severe sepsis. And I wonder whether you believe that moving that time zero point back to the pre-hospital setting is genuinely viable. And I think you sort of alluded to this when you said that, Sean, it's a clinical diagnosis. It's a little bit less like what Chris and his colleagues say in their paper, uh, acute MI, where you have, say, evidence from electrocardiogram or classic symptoms like crushing substernal chest pain to help you identify a myocardial infarction. Sepsis is a little bit 
harder to pin down often, and especially in the chaotic situation of a of an emergency medical services visit. And, and I wonder how feasible you genuinely think this might be. I think the greatest difficulty will come in determining the presence of organ failure. It won't be difficult for EMS providers to identify potential suspected sites of infection or to diagnose that there are two or more organ failures present in a patient. The challenge may come to know whether the patient, for example, has renal failure or not, which would be difficult for anyone in the field to know without appropriate laboratory testing. I think, though, that that doesn't necessarily have to be a limitation to the beginning of start times for assessing patients with severe sepsis and septic shock and providers' responses to that start time if we can note somehow that in the field it was suspected and that that transfer of knowledge occurred to the providers in the emergency department that this, it was suspected and that work began to treat and remedy severe sepsis or septic shock in the field. And as you all know from run sheets that you receive from EMS, almost everything is well-timed. So it's probably quite possible that we can, if we could document two things, the time that the providers in the field recognized potential sepsis and began therapies, and then that a transfer of knowledge occurred between those providers and the ED staff, I don't think it would be impossible to hold hospitals and other providers accountable to those timestamps. And Sean, if I may weigh in, you've brought up a number of great points and questions that we still don't know the answers to. And in particular, one is the issue of start time and the ability of providers in the field to make the diagnosis, right? And you first started with organ failure, and it makes me think about how we identify organ failure, at least in the emergency department or the ICU. You know, our consensus conference definitions for severe sepsis involve a number of lab tests to identify if a patient has organ failure. And there is some emerging, you know, efforts to have some of these lab tests performed in an ambulance. You know, there have been studies of point of care measurements, be it lactate or troponin, that folks have begun to look at in preliminary studies that are potentially feasible as a way to identify those early organ failures. And then the next step would be how is that information used? And you've brought up, again, the concept of advanced notification, right? Can the information gained in the ambulance, whether right or wrong, be conferred to providers in the emergency department when communication is often perhaps rushed, there's sick patients to take care of, uh, and not always complete? And if that could be done almost in the way that, that our cardiologists do, you know, there are folks who have field EKGs, sent on a handheld device to the cardiologist sitting at home as a way to activate the cath lab. And these studies are mostly done in Europe. But you could envision a a transfer of information about suspected sepsis and advanced notification to a hospital in order to get that ball rolling faster and meet some of the guidelines suggested by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. It seems quite possible to me that we could evolve systems to make that possible. You know, a, a typical interaction between in-hospital providers now is the emergency department to intensivist communication that has to occur. And that certainly has its rough spots and difficulties when it comes to diagnosis time and identifying the key features of severe sepsis or shock. Shock is less difficult to identify, obviously. The same hurdles would exist between pre-hospital providers, I believe, and emergency department providers. 
in exchanging information. But I don't believe that it would be impossible at triage when these patients arrive to not have a, a simple form that would capture that, that relevant information about whether sepsis was suspected. I also think you point, make a great point about point-of-care testing. Certainly, those things that are readily available, which may point us towards organ failures, and of which lactate is one, an elevated lactate, even an lactate less than four, based on the consensus definitions paper, does qualify as an organ dysfunction. Uh, would be something that you could use to diagnose organ dysfunction pre-hospital. Yeah, I want to chime in here. I'm, I'm looking right now at Table 2 from the paper where there's a comparison of severe sepsis that was diagnosed on admission and severe sepsis that was diagnosed uh, a little bit later in the hospital stay. And I think the the main finding there is that when the criteria for severe sepsis are clearly apparent on clinical exam, hypotension, you know, altered mental status, or you know, low saturation, the diagnosis of severe sepsis is readily made at the first encounter. When the organ failure relies on biochemical testing, or even sometimes it's time-sensitive, right? I mean, you might not have an elevated creatinine right away. You just have to observe for a couple hours to document oliguria. Well, naturally, that's going to lead to to delays in identifying severe sepsis. So the notion of providing point-of-care blood testing to pre-hospital providers to try to identify organ failures much earlier would, you know, quite obviously be an essential component of really moving back that time zero effectively to have a high you know, sensitivity for, for identifying these cases. I think that's exactly right, David. And, and there have been a few researchers who have explored the subjective clinical acumen of our pre-hospital providers, both at Pittsburgh as well as the same providers included in this study in King County and Seattle, and found that there's room for improvement, essentially in concluding that although these clinicians in the field are excellent, they're not yet sufficient for us to base future therapies or trials solely on their clinical suspicion for sepsis. And yet we all know vital signs alone are, are inadequate for a diagnosis. And yet the solution may lie in sort of all the pieces to the puzzle, sort of a clinical impression, changes in vital signs, and then these addition of biologic measurements, which have been studied as multi-marker biomarker panels in the ED, and are, are certainly an area of ongoing research for pre-hospital uh, systems as well. Actually, all over the country, people are trying to measure lactate as well as other multi-marker panels now in the ambulance as a way of making more efficient diagnoses. Chris, I, I want to follow up on that. So if we could resolve some of these questions about ensuring accurate and timely identification of severe sepsis in the pre-hospital setting, and we can validate that across several, you know, several geographic or care centers, what kinds of pre-hospital treatments might you envision getting used by emergency medical services, and what testing do you think they would have to use in order to use those interventions safely? That's another good question. And so I first would start by adding the comment that the performance characteristics of the test, be it a biomarker panel or a paramedic suspicion, and where our threshold should be, really ought to have some context with the treatment we foresee them using, right? So a 
expensive intervention that has a number of side effects with maybe a modest likelihood of benefit may need a fairly well-performing diagnostic test or group of tests in the field for us to use that. Whereas if we're envisioning a low-risk treatment, perhaps intravenous fluid, for example, with a low likelihood of side effects that's cheap and easy to implement, you know, maybe the specificity of our diagnostic test and where that threshold lies for the ambulance may not need to be very high. And so when we look ahead, assuming we can find some recognition tool, and, and these are actually, again, being studied in places like Denver and, and King County and other EMS systems, we would think about basic components of resuscitation and care, such as intravenous access, intravenous fluid, as a starting point. And the, the data published from our paper in the Blue Journal highlights nicely that intravenous access may be being underused in this population, and that only 30% or so of folks who had severe sepsis when they were hospitalized actually had a catheter placed in the field. And so we would think about easy-to-do, cheap interventions with a low risk of side effects. But at the same time, there may be system changes, and we've talked about these already, sort of thinking like cardiologists with their Mission Lifeline uh, program that advance notification to receiving hospitals in order to speed up care protocols that begin at the hospital door may be an even easier step than training paramedics to do additional interventions in the field. Chris, I want to follow up a little bit on that. You mentioned in in the article the possibility of uh, empiric antibiotic administration in the pre-hospital setting. And, and this rings a bell with me because there was an article in the Archives of Surgery a year ago called Eliminating Preventable Death on the Battlefield, which talked about the experience of soldiers in the Joint Special Operations Command, in which soldiers who suffered penetrating injuries would take a pill pack that consisted of analgesics and fluoroquinolones. And this intervention was associated with a substantial decrease in the rate of wound infections. And I wonder whether you think this is a, a feasible intervention and what hurdles you think would have to be overcome in order to, to implement this particular intervention. Right, and this is a fascinating but controversial topic. So many EMS directors or emergency care providers that would hear this question, and even my, myself would say this, we're not ready for prime time for pre-hospital antibiotics. Despite what might be a good experience in the military, we just don't have the data yet to say that this is practical or safe. In addition to what you've mentioned, there have been ambulance services in the UK as well as Australia who have tried to use antibiotics like ceftriaxone or penicillin for meningococcal infection. When certain guidelines have been met and clinical criteria met, paramedics have delivered in maybe less than 100 cases in the published literature of these antibiotics for septicemia from meningococcus. But the outcomes of those interventions haven't been looked at on a larger scale. And really, this is a hypothetical conversation. So presupposing that we would have a good recognition tool to identify the patient with sepsis in the ambulance, or severe sepsis for that matter, I think some of the barriers would include being able to take a history that's reliable about allergies and whether an antibiotic is even safe to administer to the patient. But then also a number of issues about training of the paramedics, the fixed 
costs of stocking these medications in ambulance, certainly that might be used frequently but may need to be kept refrigerated or cared for in a certain way and may have certainly added costs compared to, uh, you know, a bag of saline. So I think it's tempting to envision paramedics in someone's kitchen uh, loading up a dose of uh, ceftriaxone and, and infusing this, but there are many barriers doing so, and I actually don't know if it's on our near horizon. So, Sean, you know, Chris mentioned before the example of cardiologists and their very structured approach to taking care of acute myocardial infarction and communicating with pre-hospital emergency medical services in order to get facilities ready to receive folks in the emergency department of a hospital or, or into the cardiac catheterization lab. And I was just wondering, what steps do you think we in the critical care community might take to start to build a structure for pre-hospital and early hospital care that might begin to resemble care for stroke or myocardial infarction, and so how do, how do we get there? Well, it's always easiest not to reinvent the wheel, and where we have those types of communications already available between emergency medical services and emergency departments, it would be useful to take advantage of them to the best uh, of our ability already. I think here a, a key paradigm shift would be that we need to be sure that we have the cooperation and buy-in of our emergency department colleagues as we go forward. The communications clearly would not be occurring between the ICU and EMS, and so the level of scrutiny that we as critical care physicians place on this diagnosis and the attention to which we've paid it is not quite universally shared amongst our emergency department colleagues sometimes. There are great champions from the emergency medicine world who have been involved in sepsis care, most notably uh, would be Manny Rivers at Henry Ford Hospital. But many emergency departments that I've worked with across the country find sepsis a complicated diagnosis to work with, unlike myocardial infarction, where there are clear-cut markers that can help diagnose that condition. Sepsis being somewhat more murky, it's harder for them to feel comfortable treating from afar or readying their emergency department for the arrival of a patient who may or may not ultimately have severe sepsis. That much said, if we could piggyback onto the existing communication structures that exist between EMS and emergency services for sepsis, that's probably our easiest road to begin to uh, implement this type of a change. I think it, it would promise not to be easy necessarily, but I think if we worked in initially urban centers and large medical centers, piloting this kind of a project might be possible, and that would be where we would get the most success initially. And I can add on to that, Sean, by noting the emergency medicine colleagues that think about all the time-sensitive conditions they care for, be it stroke, trauma, severe sepsis, STEMI, and others that I'm not mentioning. Many of these have these advanced notification and communication channels ongoing. And there's the risk of developing siloed approaches uh, where some alerts are coming in for stroke, some STEMI alerts are going to cardiologists, severe sepsis alerts are going to a different person, and all sort of taking different approaches to that system of care. And our hope, is, as you suggest, is that through training and better recognition in the field, we can leverage those same communication methods for this at-risk population that EMS is actually seeing more often. 
and engage in more efficient and perhaps better outcomes for these patients once they arrive. Today, I was joined by Dr. Chris Seymour, the first author of the article Severe Sepsis in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, which appears in the December 15, 2012 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Also discussing the findings was Dr. Sean Townsend, Vice President of Quality and Safety at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. We discussed Dr. Seymour's team's findings about the incidence of sepsis that is cared for by emergency medical services in King County, Washington State, and the implications of these findings for the recognition and early treatment of severe sepsis. Thank you for listening.